0: It's Frank Buckley. I hope you're enjoying some time off during this last week of 2017. I am spending time with my family before I have the honor on New Year's Day of riding with my son Ben on Honda's float in the Rose Parade. We're representing JDRF, the global leader in raising funds for type 1 diabetes research, and I'm really looking forward to that. So I'll see you in the Rose Parade on the Honda float on KTLA on New Year's Day. Because I'm off, today's podcast is a year-ender of sorts with some of our memorable moments from 2017. Let's call this the Hollywood sampler because today we're going to remember conversations we had with an actor, a filmmaker, a showrunner, an entertainment reporter, a comedian, and a studio president. Maybe we'll do more of these mixtapes, as we call them, in the future, as I did last July when I took some time off then. But today, I just thought we'd enjoy a small sampling of some Hollywood folks from among the dozens of wonderful conversations that I've had the privilege of being a part of during the past year. By the way, look for something very exciting coming in the new year with Frank Buckley interviews on TV. We're going to try it out on KTLA, and I hope you'll join us when we do. It's amazing, really, how many folks we've talked to on this podcast in 2017. We've had top authors and actors, filmmakers and entrepreneurs, a studio president, as I mentioned, and a former cabinet secretary, a sitting congressman who's leading an investigation into Russia's interference in our elections, and doctors and scientists involved in important research. We've had a shark from Shark Tank, celebrity chefs from L.A. and New York, Influential journalists and musicians and athletes and everyday people who've experienced or who are doing amazing things. I was moved by the very personal stories we heard from a DACA dreamer and from war veterans. We heard from a former L.A. homicide detective who's now trying to solve the Zodiac murders, and from the former general manager of the Los Angeles Dodgers, who told us how he chose some of the players who starred in this year's World Series. We had a former White House speechwriter, a pioneering female comedian, a former monk-turned-tech company co-founder whose meditation app is sweeping the world, a sleep expert who helped us to get a good night's sleep, the first female chief executive in the NFL, and even my colleague on the KTLA 5 Morning News, entertainment anchor Sam Rubin. In fact, let's start there. I've been sitting next to Sam for the past 10 years, and I thought I'd heard all of his stories, but we hadn't really talked about how he got into the business of covering show business. Here's Sam Rubin.
1: I think to some degree that this is, you know, if... if you grew up in Indiana, and you know, Notre Dame football really mattered to you. I you know, lived in Los Angeles essentially my entire life, and this to me is the hometown sport. Mm. So the way I got started doing this, and I, I hope what I'm about to describe isn't really going away, but you know, I worked for my junior high school paper, and I worked for my high school paper, and when I was in high school, uh, a friend of mine's mom was the major entertainment reporter for the New York Times, and she said, that there was a, a lucrative opportunity for uh, these are magazines. You might be familiar with the titles that, that you're, they call them the seven sisters, women's magazines, McCall's red book, ladies home journal, things like that. So what she sort of turned me on to doing was you would, or you know, make an arrangement with one of these magazines. You'd spend a half an hour on the phone with Suzanne Plachette. You would then write up an article and you know, in eleventh grade, I would get twenty five hundred dollars wow. for you know, interviewing Suzanne Plachette. So That's I amazing. Thought, yeah, it was it was it was generous and, and not something I was able to do. And I think it was because I had done all this uh, you know newspaper writing, and so I did that you know incrementally. For, for, they call them the seven sisters, uh, throughout high school and and into college. And then. Well, hold on a second.
0: As you were doing that, I mean, this, yes, you grow up in this town and and entertainment is the sport and all of that, but you're a kid and you're interviewing these celebrities. And was it, you know, heady stuff? Did you know how to do it? Were you sort of feeling your way as you You went through it?
1: I I guess I should give credit where credit is due. And I'll give uh, one name that you'll definitely know and others that you don't. So I'm a product of LAUSD, LA Unified. And Channel 58 is the station, and they used to do a thing called Student News, and Uh it was an elective uh, at Baudry Temple, and they had Student News and No Sierra Estudianti, a Spanish version, and I was in an after-school class where we assembled three or four times a week and did a 15-minute newscast. And, uh, you know, Bill Griffith from uh, CNBC. Oh, yeah. He's about two or three years older than me. Yeah. He was the big anchor man that we all looked up to. Right, he went to FNN and then right. eventually CNBC. But he literally, probably his first tape was from this Channel 58 thing. Um, and then there was uh, Frank Darabont, who's come on to be a very huge filmmaker. Uh, Shawshank Redemption and all these other Walking Dead, you know, major movies and television shows. So it was Bill Griffith. And then Frank Darabont was the the next big anchorman. And I'm a year or two younger than Frank Darabont. And then I did it. And so uh, I had I had that experience, uh, you know, sort of under my belt. And I, I was I don't know, it was I, I felt comfortable. I've always felt comfortable about it. I've always felt, you know, vaguely knowledgeable about it. And so It was easy, you know, and and if I'm talking to Suzanne Plachette on the phone, she doesn't know I'm 16.
0: Right, right, right. (laughs) Sam does the heavy lifting when it comes to covering Hollywood for KTLA, but I've had the pleasure of talking to a number of actors and filmmakers on this podcast, among them a former teammate from an entertainment league basketball team I was on for a season. The actor is Kunal Nayyar and he's one of the nicest guys you'll ever meet. You'd never know that he's one of the highest-paid actors in Hollywood, appearing in the most-watched sitcom on TV in the U.S., Big Bang Theory. Kunal found success pretty quickly in Hollywood, and with it, he found some pressures that he wasn't expecting.
2: I had reached a point I had, you know, I, I was exhausted from sort of my schedule, and then I was... I was Truthfully, I was drinking a lot hmm. and I was not... To,
0: to, to deal with, with Yes, it? I
2: think to escape something, to escape oh. some sort of reality. Huh. Not like I'd wake up in the morning and start the sauce, you know what I mean? But every evening I, could, I was progressively drinking, couldn't wait to drink to forget the day. Wow. And that was very fascinating because I've never been in that position. I've always enjoyed a drink and enjoyed having a good time. But yeah. it was almost like I was going down this rabbit hole where I was trying to hide from myself or something. I'm not exactly sure what it was.
0: And was this, this was already after Big Bang Theory and you're well yeah. into it.
2: Yeah. Yes. Because
0: that, that's so surprising to hear. I mean, it seems like you achieve this thing that you've been trying to achieve,
2: But then what? you're there. But then what?
0: Well, I don't know. See, you that's tell me, the, then but that's
2: what? The, that's, see, that's the question, right? <laughs> that's what happens sometimes when you're lucky enough to achieve something at a very young age when you achieve something and you achieve not only fame but money uh, when you're in a position where you can take care of everyone around you and I always wanted to be the first Indian actor to make it on a sitcom and go to the Emmys and the Globes and I wanted to do this and that and I'm very very fortunate to have done a lot of it I wanted to be on Off-Broadway I did that I wanted to go to the West End End in England I did that I wanted to you know work with the best actors in the world I've done that at a young age but then what you Mm. see if you when you have all of these things, these material possessions that you think you're obsessed with, achievements in your life, money, success, if you achieve them at a young age and you realize that that's not what life is about at alright and you're not ready to experience that, mm. that's when you begin to escape your reality. Wow. That happens all the time. This is why so many people in this town or in this industry, in lots of industries similar to ours, um, have have taken their own lives recently. Yeah because they're not understanding, because they realize that that's not what it's about.
0: Is it because you think if I get this, or I achieve that, or I make this much money, my life is going to magically transform or who I am or what it is? It's that sort of thing.
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. You think once this happens, then I can do this. Now, I understand the criticism to that too. It's easy for you to say because you've made this money, you've done this, so. but a lot of us don't have that. But even if you did, then what? Yeah. So this is the question I think that I was running away from. Hmm. This is why I think I was trying to work as much as I can and do as many things as I can. Yet I couldn't sit one second with myself. Hmm. You couldn't I, really
0: enjoy the, I didn't the know, moment. I didn't know who I am.
2: How, wow. If you don't know who you are, how can you sit in your own company? Yeah, this is why this cell phones and uh, this sort of this, this Instagram and Twitter, this idea of escapism. If I sit for two seconds, I have to look at something or be doing something because if I sit in silence with myself, it's very uncomfortable because you're not in good company. Yeah, you see, you don't know yourself. Yeah, because you think you know yourself, you think, but that's just all identity. It's not really who you are. Mm. So this I learned. Uh, that I've been learning and I've been on this journey because it's the most important thing to me uh, right now.
0: And is is it a spiritual thing or what? How are you? What guides you now? In, you know, in I this think if trip- you say part? if
2: you say words like spiritual, it scares people because they think you're doing some mumbo jumbo or you have to go to a cave for thirty years to live. And how will you? Do you have to give up all your material possessions? No, the truth is, I'm enjoying everything I have now for the first time in my life because I'm not trying to, not that I'm not preserving it, I'm smart with obviously everything that we're doing, but I'm not doing something to prove something to myself. I'm actually enjoying it. I have a nice car. I'm actually enjoying driving it. Not like, oh, I have to get this. or I shouldn't get that because if I do, then people will think of me in this way. Right. No, I'm like, no, it's, this is amazing. You I know? want
0: this car because it's a great car. Yeah, and, exactly. and I like driving
2: it. And I like driving it. And, or, or I want to do this with my life or that with my life. But
0: I guess what I'm asking is, so in, in my life, uh you know my wife is someone who's very grounded mm. and you've met my wife mm-hmm. and she's she's someone who's very um thoughtful mm. and uh, and doesn't take things personally and is mm. is in some ways the opposite of me
3: mm-hmm.
0: right and she gets me to see things in myself that that you know i i don't see or mm-hmm. i hadn't seen in the past mm-hmm. and i think that she has helped me and and having children has helped me to ground me and realize what's important in the world. Mm-hmm. And I just wonder, is there a person like that in your life? Is mm-hmm. it your wife? Is it, a, you know, is it someone that you met? Mm-hmm. Or was it just a, a, a collection of things and people?
2: For me, it was myself, really. Mm. Wow. Is when I realized that it doesn't matter what my wife thinks of me, it doesn't matter what anyone thinks of me, that all of anyone's opinion of me is based on their own reality is based on everything that they've learned in their lives. So Mm. That they want me to be like them has nothing to do with my actual existence. Mm. Right now, obviously I'm not saying that you have to be, if I'm mean to people and they don't like me understandably, but I can be incredibly nice to people and they won't like me either. Detaching myself from that really helped me understand what all of this was about. Like, spending time with myself, really looking at myself, you know? That's what it means to be spiritual. It doesn't mean you have to give up anything. It just means spending time with yourself, getting to know who you truly are. If you took away everything from me, even my identity, even my name, like what's left, who is that? When you can find that, then the rest of the stuff you can enjoy and play around and have a wonderful life. But I think, going back to what I was saying is, I think what is happening is people, they want to create peace in the world, but they don't even have one ounce of peace within themselves. Yeah. So how can they? Yeah. This is why I encourage people to just spend some time with yourself, whatever that means. It doesn't yeah. have to mean anything big. At least take, instead of going to the gym five days a week, which you should also do if you'd like to, spend five minutes a day with yourself. Yeah. This really helped me.
0: Kunal is in front of the camera, but there are many other folks in Hollywood who work behind the scenes. And I always learn something when these filmmakers come on, the writers and directors and others who make the films and TV shows that we watch. One of them is a good friend, Billy Ray. He's an A-list Hollywood writer who was nominated for an Academy Award for Captain Phillips. He's also the writer-director of films like Breach and Shattered Glass. He was just launching a new project as a co-showrunner on Amazon when I talked to him last summer, the show was the last tycoon. I have always admired Billy's work ethic. Here's Billy Ray. And there have been so many occasions when I have tried to pull you out of <laughs> your zone to go play golf or to have lunch or whatever it is, and and because I think oh, he's a writer, he can uh, spend his time however he wants. Mm-hmm. You're the most disciplined person I know. Thank you. And it's and it's not just your writing. I think you're just a disciplined person in general, and you know this. And, and is that sort of a mistake that a lot of writers or would-be writers make? They think, oh, this is a great life, i got to hang out, mm-hmm. and, uh, and they get distracted.
4: Well, I, I have a lot to say about that, and I say it to young writers all the time. You know, we have this program at the Writers Guild called the New Member Orientation, where three times a year we bring in the new members of the WGA, and I'm up there with a microphone talking to them about work ethic and what I think they're going to need to do in order to be a writer, and... and what I always say to them is, I take my son to his bus stop at 7.15 in the morning. I'm at my desk by 8. Uh, somebody feeds me at 1. I'm back at my desk at 1.15, and I go until 6. And I'm not surfing the web. I'm not trying to find ex-girlfriends on Facebook. You know, I'm not gambling online. I'm just working. Yeah. And I'm doing that because there's a mountaintop that I'm trying to get to, And I'm not going to be happy until I get there. Mm -hmm. I can see it from here, but I'm nowhere near it. And so I just have to work. You know, um, if you were a mechanic, you wouldn't go to Starbucks for two hours and wait for your muse to land on your shoulder to say, fix the carburetor. But you would just go (laughs) fix the carburetor. Well, we're mechanics. 95% of writing is problem solving. I spend very little time sitting around waiting for inspiration. Mm -hmm. It's just, does this work or does it not work? And what do I need to do to make it work? You know, the best advice I ever heard about screenwriting was from Patty Chayefsky, who won three Oscars for uh, Marty and the Hospital and Network. And he said, his advice to young screenwriters was, don't think of it as art. Think of it as work. Mm. Because if a writer is stuck, and he or she calls in another writer for help, that second writer doesn't come in and say, what's the art problem? Right. That second writer comes in and says, what's not working? Right. And they get under the hood and they fix it. And if you can approach it in that way, at the end of every day, you'll be able to look in the mirror and say, I did my job today. Mm-hmm. And what what Chayefsky would say is, if you're an artist, it'll come out as art anyway. Mm. That's the way to think about it.
0: And and so when you uh, approach uh, uh, your, I guess today, laptop or, or computer or whatever you write on, do you do you ever have that moment where you're looking at the screen and it's a blank screen and you think, okay, w- you know, where am I going with this? And, and you start down one road and you, you know, write an entire act and then you go, wow, that's, that was a waste of time because it's not any, any good. Or do you, f- you complete the structure, finish the whole thing, and then come back and start that process?
4: Well, over my monitor at home in, big bold letters it says what is the simple emotional journey and that forces me to remind myself what is the thing i'm trying to say what what am i writing about every movie that is your that is in your top 10 has a simple emotional journey hmm. to it it's either there's no place like home or uh Chief Brody and Jaws, overcoming his fear of the water to kill a shark. That's an emotional journey.
0: Let's do it this way. Let's go through some of your films. Breach. What was the emotional journey in that?
4: That was about how Ryan Phillippe, because he's stuck in a room with Chris Cooper, has to ask himself how he really feels about his marriage, his career, and his religion. Mm. Shattered, that, Shattered Glass. Shattered Glass is about the least popular kid in high school having to take down the most popular kid in high school.
0: Um, uh, the, the Jodie Foster uh, airplane film. Oh, my God,
4: Flight Plan? Flight Plan. Flight Plan is what would you do if you couldn't find your six-year-old daughter on an airplane? These are emotional ideas. Yeah. If I write a script and I give it to someone and they say to me, this is the smartest script I've ever read, I have failed. It means I'm not reaching them on an emotional level. I need them to be responding to the script in emotional terms. I, it, when it works, they're saying things like, I love this. I was so scared. I can't believe you killed that guy. Oh my God, I'm so sad. Right. But they're reacting with their guts. Yeah. You know, screenwriting is an intellectual exercise that's designed to elicit an emotional response. Uh Uh-huh. And so, what that means is, you do the thinking so that the audience doesn't have to. They should just be feeling. When you're watching The Godfather, you're just feeling the movie. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. When you're watching Casablanca, You're just feeling it. Um, And I would argue that when you're watching any of the great Pixar movies, look at Inside Out, look at WALL-E, and think about how much feeling you're doing in Mm -hmm. those movies. It's Mm -hmm. because they have created this unbelievably rich tapestry so that you can just experience it. You can just have an emotional ride. Mm -hmm. That's what screenwriting is, when Mm. when it's done well. You're not supposed to be sitting there thinking and processing. You're supposed to be just inside the movie. And you are the protagonist is the emotional window through which we step into that story.
0: Billy was the showrunner on The Last Tycoon on Amazon. We've talked to a number of showrunners. They're typically writer-producers who run TV shows. Among the folks we've talked to this year, Janine Sherman-Berrois, she's the showrunner for TNT's Claws. What's different about that show is that it's a female-driven show run by a woman. Here's what struck me as I was watching it. it's, And I don't and I want to sound, sound sexist as I say this, but typically a show like this is the male characters are the bad guys. They're the, the protagonists. They're the main characters. Right. The females are there in sort of support capacity. I mean, if you think of The Sopranos, although... Uh, uh, the main guy's uh, Tony Soprano's wife was a right. central Miller, character, yeah. obviously, but it seems to be more about the men in in the crime family. This really flips that on the head,
5: right? Right. I think it, I think that's what's interesting about it because it's a female empowerment piece and it you never see complex women that are kind of badass and unapologetic right and so I think when you look at Nisi Nash's character does not you see that you see somebody who wants a bigger piece of the pie wants a piece of the American dream she wants to get it she's gonna do a little things to color outside of the lines to get it and she's not gonna be you know sad about it
0: Nisi Nash is amazing She's in this killer.
5: World. <laughs> She's killer. Yeah. Um, you know, it's so funny, when we met with her, we found out she was available. I had a meeting with her, myself, and Elliot, who created the show. We met, and she just blew us away. Um, Desna was not written, you know, racially identified. She huh. could have been anybody. Interesting. And women all over town were sort of fighting for the part. And Peter Roth and Susan Rovner at Warner said, sit down with Nisi Nash. We sat down with her, and when she walked out of the room, we said, wow, that is Desna.
6: And,
0: and how did she sell you on that? Because we've had Nisi on the show many times. Right. She's always full of energy and great and a lot of fun. I never saw her. I mean, there's one scene in particular that I'm thinking about, and I can't remember which episode it, it is, but maybe it's episode three. She's sitting on the toilet. Yes, yes. And just. Yeah. Um, and, and you see so many emotions cross through her during this scene.
5: Yes. A-
0: and she's just at the end of it. Yeah. And. It's in the, mean, it actually
5: in the pilot. It's in the pilot. It's in it the pilot, okay. It's in the pilot, and when she feels like her world is coming, crashing yeah. down. She she does not have this money to help her brother. She won't get this new salon. You know, the Dixie Mafia roller and all of them have sort of, an uncle daddy, have screwed her over, and yeah. she's just at her wit's end. And she's trying to just take, you know, two minutes, like women do, <laughs> <laughs> to go to the bathroom. Right. And her brother, you know, Dean, Harold Perroneau, is yeah. banging on the door, and she's just like, can I have two? minutes um i think that that kind of tore de force yes um we had seen niecy do getting on on hbo yeah and so we were kind of familiar that she turned this you know very real dramatic turn in that show um and so we knew she could do it and so she we we also knew she had the humor and that's what right. would make you love desna because yeah. Desna's doing these moves that some people could be perceive as you know so messed up i won't go on the journey with her yeah but Nisi's heart and her humor make you you know it's like she grabs your hand and says come with me come yeah. with me and you're like oh my gosh did she just do what i think she did
0: right because in some ways you look at her and in, in, in and again i compare to tony soprano not a sympathetic character yeah, yeah. and yet you you're in a you end up rooting for you're, tony soprano yes. and the same thing with Nisi's character you you're you're rooting for. You're her, rooting for despite her. her, the world that she's a part of.
5: Yeah, you know it's it, it's interesting. Um, she has this sort of female Walter White kind of brewing, mm-hmm. and so you see that you know with people who've done comedy, if you can access humor, you yes. can sort of access. Um, this dark side as well and so Nisi can get us both and it's you know the first time we saw her shoot a scene we were like she is a this is this is the part yeah yeah Yeah. Yeah. I mean and
0: and you immediately buy in as just from my point of view as a viewer but take me back to that meeting with her you you know her work you know her body of work you have a sense of her I don't know if you'd met her before but you sit down with her and what is it that she does or says in that meeting that says okay this is it
5: she was able to kind of create a narrative. I think I, I think when we met her it was Rashida Jones, Will McCormick and Elliot Lawrence and myself and she kind of made everyone in the room feel like a star mm. and told an anecdote to every single person. And that sort of ability to to tell like a campfire story yeah. and to get everyone to listen to you and then to laugh and to hit each other because you're laughing so hard is a skill. It, it is a it's a gift. Yeah. And when you see and meet stars, you know it. Yeah. Like you just know, like you're like, oh, that's the person. Right. And she did that thing where she kind of seduced you, made you laugh, yes, yes. made you cry because she could tell you a story about, you know, herself in her childhood or about her family, about, you know, you know, losing someone in her life, you know, and it made you feel. And that in so, that meeting, in that meeting. I literally said, she, I literally thought, I was like, you should teach a class on how to give a meeting <laughs> because you're that, you're that good. And yeah. she was brilliant. We walked out with tears of laughter and with sadness. And then she That's came crazy. so dolled up and beautiful. We were like, she, she's not." Mm. Yeah, she was great.
0: I really enjoyed a conversation I had with the comedian, podcaster, and NPR panelist, Paula Poundstone. I asked her about this notion that many people have about comedians that... They're really just people in pain.
3: When I was a kid, and I, you know, I would take this idea back. Uh, you, you know, if you could go over your life, like in that um, movie, Defending Your, you know, if you yes, could Defending go over your life, your yeah, life the Albert with a big pink pet eraser, w- one of the things I would erase is this idea that somehow comedy stems from unhappiness. Right. It's, it's ridiculous. Um uh and i think when i was younger um and i did really value my sense of humor and i really valued the fact that people responded to it i think because i was aware of that idea yeah i think this made me sort of more wallow in whatever you know mm. anguish uh, came my way and by the way i don't think it came my way at a, at a greater or lesser rate than than the average person in any way but I think because I had that notion in my head I think everything uh, it heightened the drama for me and I think that when I came to Los Angeles and you know there's a language in LA that's really awful which is and you don't know this until you come here uh, like in in Boston where where I started out as a comic you know some people thought you're a good comic some people thought you're a bad comic yeah. uh, 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 but here you come and people say stuff like oh uh in the business they'll go we love her we we love her the people in the business you know what it turns out it's not the kind of love that you right, right? it's <laughs> they just have these extremes in right. their way of talking but it means the same thing as somebody thinking uh, yeah no she's okay <laughs> <laughs> I mean, when you come here and you find out some, you know, somebody loves your work, you're like, there it is. I'm, I'm taking off from here. And right. it's, no, no, it's really just the same as being quite average.
0: Right. And so you, you, you don't subscribe to this business of, of, uh, you got to be in pain to be a good comic, no. and that all comics are in pain. But no. you drop little sort of nuggets throughout your book, which is, you know, laugh out loud kind of a, a book, and I, I found myself laughing out loud. Um, as I was reading, it. but th- but there are little moments that I that I, I, you know, sort of struck me, and you sort of bury them in a way in, in in narratives, and, and I'll gi- I'll just give you one example, and and this is the the get warm and fuzzy experiment, you say you know I am longing for real connection, and then it sort of like goes on to you know other things, and and then you talk about trying to seek hugs from people and going around and trying to (laughs) hug everybody and you're not sure if this is the right moment or, you know, then you, yes, you hug and then you go crazy and you hug everybody on the the wait, wait staff. And, and I, when I read a line like that, I think maybe she does, you know, have this longing for human connection and maybe, I don't think
3: that separates me from the pack though. Okay. All right. For those who don't know, my book, The Totally Unscientific Study of the Search for Human Happiness, it is, uh, well, it's a, memoir, which I get to keep writing because I'm not dead yet, but um, it is a series of experiments doing things that I or other people thought would make me happy, and in the telling of those things, um, and each chapter is written as an experiment with the conditions and the hypothesis and hopefully the funniest field notes ever written, but (laughs) the analysis of each uh, 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 within each uh, uh, chapter is because the question for me wasn't whether I would enjoy something. It's what could I do that would give me a bounce so that when I return to my regular life, mm-hmm. um, you know, you would still feel uh, some modicum of, of happiness. You'd have some umbrella, if you will, for the inevitable on and off rains of one's daily life. Right. So the analysis of each chapter is the story of raising a house full of kids and animals and just, you know, being a stand up comic and doing my regular life. But I would argue, um, I think I did the get real experiment. No, no, the get the get warm, warm and, fuzzy and fuzzy one. I didn't it come after. Oh, maybe they all. I think the get wired one was maybe the wired second or earlier. third yeah. chapter. Okay. Well, yeah. I mean, I would argue that everyone is looking for um, real connection, and that we have less and less of it as a result of. I mean, I go. I'm I'm working on this a new uh, podcast for NPR and there's a guy from NPR who's in St. Paul and he's been a part of getting a press release out. And we have emailed back and forth 10 times about a handful of lines. And I finally just, I sent him an email this morning going, just call me, please just call me. We could have completed that exchange successfully and clearly if we had done it over the phone. Yeah. And, and I said that from the very start, but a lot of people find that like a really weird idea.
0: <laughs> I yeah. know, it's so strange. We don't talk to each other. But I guess what I'm, I'm alluding to is it, it, there seems to be some sadness. And, oh, and, and there's le- great unhappiness. Le- let me, let me, within me read this my line. Book. You say, I have to admit, and I think this is near the end, I have to admit that although I feel the weight of all that is difficult and sad, same as I ever have, I don't feel lost to it as I once might have. And so there's this allusion to sort of a sadness. And I wonder, you know, you say that your humor doesn't come from a pain necessarily, but it's a coping mechanism. And is there a sadness that—is it the same sadness that I feel? Is it?
2: Oh, I
3: think so. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think so. it's, it's extraordinary in any way. They're just—you know, and some of it may be aging, too. I mean, maybe you just handle things differently as you get older. Mm. Um, uh, you know, I mean, I think I had— uh, uh, you know, I think I indulged myself in my teenage years, and then I and then I allowed that to continue until I was about 40, maybe. <laughs> what do you mean? I, mean- I, I just mean th- thinking somehow that when I was unhappy or when I was troubled by something, that it was somehow more significant than someone else. I see. You know, I think I really allowed myself to believe that for a long, long time. Mm. And now as I look around the world, I'm like, what on earth was I thinking?
0: Finally, one of the first interviews of 2017 was with my friend Greg Silverman, who just announced that he was stepping away from his role as president at Warner Brothers to produce, to invest, to do all sorts of things, and he is. But one of the stories he told us during this interview was about a film that's coming out in late March of 2018. It's called Ready Player One, and it's being directed by Steven Spielberg. Greg took us inside the process of getting Spielberg to direct the film. Just some of the names that people they they that are mentioned frequently in association with you: Ben Affleck, Steve Carell, um, Christopher Nolan, uh, who people know with from Inception and Dark Knight, uh, Anne Hathaway, and then Steven Spielberg, who you know we've always associated with other studios. You approached him, and you've told me this story before, but tell tell me again when it, with Ready Player One.
6: Well, look, th- this is the. I think when a, a studio executive is focused on the right thing, which is when you have a project and you know a piece of talent is the exact right conduit for that project to the audience. Yeah, And that's what happened with Ready Player One. We read this book, which is about the future and about friendship and about family and about what our place is in the world. Everything that Steven's dealt with his whole career. Yeah. And it was so clear to all of us that the perfect director for the movie... Was Steven Spielberg, and that's the thing about being at Warner Brothers—you can call and say, "Can I please come and present something that I think would be interesting to him?"
0: But did, didn't everyone say to you, "Well, you know, Steven is at—you know—he's he, somewhere, he's somewhere else. He doesn't—you know—he doesn't do Warner Brothers films."
6: Uh, well, you know, uh, some people had said that, but again, based on the history, he made a lot of movies at Warner's, huh? and it just had been a while. It had been uh, over twenty years, I think. And he really felt like a Warner Brothers guy. I mean, I know Steve Ross, who had run uh, Warner's uh, almost 40 years ago now, um, and Stephen had an amazing uh, relationship, and they really loved each other. And I felt like he was a part of the Warner family, even though he hadn't been there for a long time. Yeah. So it felt really natural to us to go back and ask him to come back. So tell me how that works.
0: You, you decide, okay, I, I want to, I mean, essentially, you're the, you're the president of the studio. You're going to pitch
6: Steven Spielberg. Okay, so first, about 600 people do a lot of work. <laughs> so you start with Ernie Klein writing an amazing book. Uh, Dan Farah, who's his manager, bringing the book uh, to us. Donald Deline, the producer, and Jesse Ehrman, the executive of Warner Brothers. Then you have Zach Penn write an amazing screenplay. And you have a guy named Christopher at our company who runs visual effects. I did Gravity and 300 and Matrix and all those. Like a really amazing brain about how to do something new and interesting. Um, and he takes a look at it and we all look, look at it and think we can, right now we can really make this movie technologically with the technology that's coming in about six to 12 months. Right. Um, and we all sort of get together and say, who would be the best director for this and decide on Steven. And then, um, you know, you call the agency and ask if you can have a meeting and you go and, uh, see Steven and he's so lovely. And Michael Wright was there. Who's running his company now. And we talk about, this is the amazing thing, and this is what I love, and all the directors that I work with and really latched onto, we talked about how cool it would be for the audience hmm. if we could pull this off. Hmm. Like, can we get to this that magic moment? And that's what Steven has done. I mean, it's crazy. He's done it 25, 30 times yeah. where you have a transcendent experience in a chair watching a screen. Right. And, um, we all felt like this material and this director, we could really make the audience happy.
0: So take me in the room. You, you sit down after the pleasantries and then do you just go through the, this, has he
6: read the script at that point or what is that like? I was going to pitch him to ask him to read the script, but in typical Steven Spielberg fashion, he was the most prepared person in the room. (laughs) So I think he had read the script already a couple of times and he had read the book before the meeting. I mean, it's really amazing. And so we start pitching about what the story is and what we think it could be. And he goes, no, 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 I've I've read the script. I think it could be interesting. And then we start talking about, can we do something new and different? And like I said, can we, what's it going to be like for the audience sitting in the theater? How are we going to amaze them? How are we going to entertain them? How are we going to move them? Mm. Um, And then as soon as he starts talking about maybe making the movie, I just shut up. I see. Because
0: you knew that you had closed or
6: because you... No, because I didn't have more to add than the other people that were in the room. So Jesse Irvin knew the script and the book and everything, and Donald knew the script and the book so much better than I did. Steven's now read it a few times, and he's just a brilliant story guy. So let those guys talk Mm -hmm. about the story stuff. And then Defaria and he started talking about the production and what sort of magic they could do in the production. And... This is sort of my philosophy about this stuff, which is add where I can add and then shut up. Mm -hmm. So those guys started going at it and I just enjoyed it. Like I just took a moment to look around the room and say, Wow, this this may be a movie a few years from now and it's all starting right here. And these are all amazing people. And (laughs) you know, the you know, Jesse and Donald and Chris are all my friends. Um, I would say that Steven's my friend now. He may say I'm I'm an acquaintance from Warner Brothers, but but to to end up making movies with people that you really admire and love, and that's, that's the whole thing.
0: That was Greg Silverman, who has a new company. It's called Stampede Ventures. If you want to hear the entire interview with Greg or with any of the folks on this podcast, or if you want to listen to any of the 74 interviews we've had, they're available wherever you listen to podcasts, including ktla.com slash podcasts. I want to thank Greg and everyone who was kind enough to share an hour of their time with me in 2017. And that includes you. I wouldn't have a podcast if you didn't listen. So thank you. If you're a regular listener and we have them around the world, you know how much I enjoy doing this. Thanks, to for commenting on the podcast on social media and sharing the podcast with your friends and family. Please tag me when you do at Frank Buckley TV on Twitter and Instagram. And there's a Frank Buckley Facebook page as well. As I said before, we have something very exciting coming in 2018. We're planning to put Frank Buckley interviews on TV Or onto a screen on your phone or your tablet or your laptop. We're going to try it out to see if it works. I hope you'll stay tuned and check it out. I couldn't do any of this without my podcast partner, Bobby Gonzalez, who has a KTLA podcast of his own. I hope you'll check that out. It's called Spoken Dreams. Bobby, thank you very much. And thanks to Jason Ball, the vice president of news here at KTLA, who has been the biggest supporter of the Frank Buckley Interviews podcast and without whom this podcast wouldn't exist. Thanks again to you for listening and for supporting us. And until next time, I'll see you on TV.